Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Hi, this is co-host Cal Raustiala. I want to welcome you back to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines, brought to you by the American Society of International Law. And for today's episode, we are going to discuss uh, recent events concerning the Iran deal, also known as the JCPOA. And to do that, we've asked to come on the podcast, Tess Bridgman. Tess is co-editor-in-chief at Just Security, a senior fellow and visiting scholar at NYU's Center on Law and Security. And previously, she was special assistant to President Obama, associate counsel to the president, and deputy legal advisor to the National Security Council. And in that role, she worked uh, quite directly on the negotiation of the JCPOA. And so we thought it was uh, a good idea to bring Tess on to to kind of get us up to speed on what's happening with it and specifically what's been going on in the UN Security Council, which some of you uh, listening out there may be aware of. So Tess, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to be back, Cal. Thanks for having me. It's it's our pleasure. And maybe we could just start with... um, you know, sort of what the state of play is with regard uh, to the JCPOA, to the Iran deal, and uh, what's happening right now uh, in the Security Council. So if you wanted to just summarize briefly for us those two things, that would be great. Sure. So the JCPOA itself, as most of you likely know, is currently on life support. The Trump administration decided to walk away from the deal and stop participating in 2018. They did so, of course, very publicly and ceremoniously, but also uh, quite unprovoked because the uh, Iranian side was continuing to uphold its end of the deal as confirmed um, in many uh, verification reports by the IAEA. Notwithstanding that fact, um, when the Trump administration walked away, they reimposed U.S. sanctions that had been lifted as part of the deal, um, but did not uh, move to reimpose the multilateral sanctions at the United Nations that had also been suspended as part of the deal. The big issue in the headlines right now is, can the United States still, even though it walked away two years ago, reimpose those multilateral sanctions. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has purported as recently as this morning by tweet uh, that those sanctions will be reimposed uh, based on uh, the United States having attempted to trigger the reimposition process, which we'll get into in a bit. Um, And the rest of the Security Council, uh, save one other state, disagree. Uh, So that's kind of the the 30,000 foot version, Cal, and we can break that down uh, piece by piece. That's fantastic. So, well, I guess one thing to go back a little bit in time to to the role that you played, um, as I recall, there was a lot of discussion at the time of the negotiation of the JCPOA about the interaction between, uh, let's say, U.S. sanctions, unilateral sanctions that, that might have been in place or could be put in place and the role of the Security Council and the role of Congress and and how the Obama administration uh, was using the existence of the Security Council as a way to to get to an endpoint that it maybe couldn't get to in a more direct fashion. I don't know if you would agree with that particular gloss, but um, but if you could take us back to the initial thinking, you know, what was envisioned? What maybe let me put it this way: What was envisioned for the Security Council? Why was the Security Council the centerpiece? Uh, and what was imagined for snapback, uh, let's say, when this was first first put into place? 
Sure. Um, those are really important questions and absolutely were an intense subject of debate between the executive branch and, and Congress within the U.S. in the lead up to the JCPOA. Uh, but well before that, there was bipartisan support for and, and approval of uh, an attempt to bring about international pressure on Iran to come into compliance with its nuclear obligations under the NPT uh, and to, um, you know, be, become a member in good standing again of the international community in terms of um, its nuclear program. And the U.S. had imposed a series of unilateral sanctions ratcheted up over time that were never the only uh, part of that most important part, some some might argue, was the action that took place at the UN Security Council over almost a decade. There was an effort to ensure every state had obligations to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon uh, through addressing proliferation concerns at the Security Council level. So there were a series of UN Security Council resolutions that imposed restrictions on Iran uh, that were vitally important, not only in uh, bringing Iran to the negotiating table, uh, but also to ensuring that there was global unity of purpose. Um, and that was always something that was important uh, in, the, in the JCPOA negotiations themselves, was the idea that it wasn't just the United States versus Iran. Um, there were, of course, the other, the other members of the negotiations themselves, the, P, the P5 plus one, or as the Europeans called it, the E3 EU plus three. So that's the UK, France, Germany, China, Russia, the EU, and the United States, um, uh, effectively on one side of the table. Um, Can we just pause on that for a second? What, sure. So that's basically adding in Germany and, uh, you know, I assume the logic of that was just simply the size and importance of the German economy and the trade that might ensue. Uh, but was there more to it? Why Germany? Uh, Germany was important also to the sanctions architecture um, as as a big uh, a big player, of course, um, in in Europe and to to the EU uh, as a whole. So the the idea was that the U.S. and the EU would stand united on this, and Germany was a was a key player in that. Okay. And Japan, was was that a consideration at any point in being a part of this, or was Japan simply too distant, too, too peripheral? So Japan absolutely was a player in terms of implementation of sanctions uh, and of, of going along as part of a, a cohesive, a relatively cohesive global effort uh, to bring around to the negotiating table uh, and to ensure that you know, items of proliferation concern um, were were not able to get into Iranian, uh, the Iranian nuclear program. Um, but certainly with respect to the actual negotiations that led to the JCPOA, which were really a, a follow-on from earlier negotiations that had failed, it was already pretty solidified that it was it was going to be the, the P5 uh, that were going to be the main the main players in the negotiations. Okay, great. So so to go back to the role of the Security Council, um, there was debate, of course, within the U.S. domestic context about whether what the Obama administration did was appropriate with regard to, let's say, circumventing, as some thought, the prerogatives of Congress. Uh, I assume you thought that that was fine, but you want to now that you're out of office, do you want to opine on that a little bit? Is this is this is this a model for the future? For example, is this problematic in some more general way outside of the context of Iran, or or is this a useful and and totally appropriate approach? 
So at the time, I thought it was a useful and totally appropriate approach. And, uh, you know, I actually still think that <laughs> um, on the other side. So there was always the possibility that Congress could decide to uh, make it impossible for the United States to implement the JCPOA by simply removing the ability of the U.S. to suspend its unilateral sanctions. Many of the sanctions that were suspended as part of the JCPOA uh, were statutorily imposed sanctions, but there were waivers that could be issued and that were issued uh, in order to suspend their implementation. And it was always within Congress's prerogative um, to have a say in that. And they chose to have a say through what became known as INARA, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act of 2015, where they essentially gave themselves a, a period in which they would consider whether or not to vote up or down the JCPOA. And if it were to be, quote, disapproved in the, the terms of INARA, uh, the U.S. would not be able to uh, provide sanctions relief, and the deal would essentially collapse before it got off the ground. Um, there was a vote uh, that was held to disapprove, um, and it, it, it didn't go through, and as a result, the JCPOA was able to go into effect. Um, you know, Can I think I if, 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 that sure. had vo if that vote had gone the other way, mm -hmm. would the U.S. have been uh, out of compliance with the relevant security or some of the relevant Security Council resolutions as a result? So at that point, the, uh, the Security Council resolutions um, were uh, almost entirely still uh, in effect. So one thing we haven't gotten into yet is, is what Resolution 2231 actually did, which is the the resolution that endorsed the JCPOA and, and in large part made its global implementation possible. Um, but essentially, the, the key issue there of termination of the previous Security Council resolutions and recreating a new architecture that re-embodied many of the same restrictions but also changed others to allow JCPOA implementation to go forward, that whole process was really keyed to uh, verification um, by the IAEA that Iran had taken several important steps with respect to its nuclear program. But snapback, uh, which we'll get into in a moment, was also really key to the U.S. posture uh, domestically at that point in time. The executive branch was able to say to Congress in good faith, if at any moment we cannot participate in the JCPOA if we feel that we need to walk away either because of what's going on here domestically or, you know, more important, and this was, was really the motivation, if Iran were caught cheating, if there were significant non-performance of their nuclear obligations, we could put the old architecture back in place and there was nothing any other state could do to stop us and nothing any other group of states could do to stop us. We had the unilateral ability preserved to put that architecture back in place. And that was one of the reasons multilateral snapback was so important. I think that the key main reason was, uh, you know, for the, the leverage and the, uh, you know, the architecture of the JCPOA itself. But that subsidiary reason of being able to tell our Congress in good faith, no, we do have the ability to walk away from this. We haven't put you, Congress, in a straitjacket. If as a domestic political process, it is, it is decided that we cannot uphold our end of the bargain in the JCPOA for whatever reason. If we walk away, we can bring back the status quo ante. And that 
was certainly the case so long as the U.S. was, in fact, a participant of the JCPOA, which we'll get to uh, later. But in, in 2015, that um, that was, uh, you know, a, a something that we could offer to Congress to assuage their fears uh, and, and remained the case until 2018. And that was also true for any of the other named participants in the JCPOA, that they also had the same symmetric ability to snap back in that way? Any of the participants who were states, so not the EU, but yes. So the, um, the and this might be a good a good time to get into what snapback actually is in the multilateral sense. Let's do um, that. So we can start with just a very brief detour into unilateral snapback, which is the other thing that the United States um, was able to say in in good faith to Congress. Um, the executive branch was able to say we would be able to do at any point if needed. Um, within a matter of days, the U.S. could stand back up its sanctions architecture if need be. Uh, and in fact, that is largely what the Trump administration did when it walked away and stopped participating in 2018. Um, separate from that was the question of whether the U.N. Security Council sanctions um, that were also a, a very elaborate and thorough set of, of restrictions um, whether those could be put back in place, how quickly, uh, and whether uh, other countries would be able to stop us from doing so. And I think there was a fear that, you know, the arduous negotiation process in New York wouldn't lead to uh, an ability to to restore the status quo ante. So we needed some automaticity. We needed some ability to create certainty around the idea that know that sanctions architecture really would be able to, to be put back in place and that, that could happen relatively quickly. And that's why it's called snapback, right? It's not called negotiation around a new sanctions posture. <laughs> um, and snapback was, was really true to its name. So the idea is if any one of the participants, after exhausting in good faith, the other mechanisms at our disposal for, for trying to resolve a dispute around implementation, after those had had failed, any member could go to the Security Council and uh, notify the president uh, of significant non-performance on the part of one of the other parties. And within 30 days after that notification, those sanctions that had been terminated as a result of UNSCR 2231 would automatically come back into effect. And the only thing that could stop that from happening was if a resolution was passed preserving uh, UNSCR 2231. So in effect, the idea was it required unanimity to maintain the status quo of UNSCR 2231 and the JCPOA remaining in place, whereas any one state could, in fact, restore the pre-JCPOA UN Security Council resolutions. And no other state could stop that notifying member from being able to restore the previous Security Council resolutions. That's a very powerful lever. It's one that at the time we knew could, you know, potentially in the wrong hands be dangerous, uh, but it was the, the unilateral right of exit, if you will, uh, that we wanted to retain for ourselves. Uh, and we're able to do through uh, through the careful crafting of, of UNSCR 2231. And was this architecture, which I agree is, is quite complex and, and delicate in a sense, 
something that the United States uh, really insisted upon? I mean, that's sort of implicit in what you've said, but were other states happy about it? Did they oppose it? Um, obviously, they went along with it at some point, but was it really our invention? Uh, without getting too much into internal deliberations, I, I will just say um, that it it was certainly a matter of, of debate, uh, and it was uh, a long process of negotiation. Uh, the crafting of UNSCR 2231, just as there was a long process of negoci- negotiation to finalize the text of the JCPOA itself, uh, it of course involved more than just the JCPOA members, um, participant states, because uh, it was a creature of the council, not simply a creature of the P5 plus one and Iran. Um, and there was significant attention paid to other potential options that would have gone almost all the way towards a unilateral right to snap back, but perhaps required two countries or three countries um, to to want to um, uh, restore the the previous unscores rather than just allowing one country to do so. Uh, In the end, it was decided that the the best way to do it uh, from from the U.S. perspective and and other states agreed in the end um, was to reserve that unilateral right uh, so that there couldn't be on the other side one unilateral actor uh, that was able to stop the reimposition of the multilateral sanctions even if there was a scenario where it was clearly the right outcome. And again, that's that's not a scenario like the one we're in now, where it's simply the U.S. side being intransigent. It was a scenario, for example, that was envisioned where uh, the IAEA had confirmed that Iran had in fact been, been cheating or that there was a, a covert facility revealed, uh, that there was essentially such... such um, significant non-performance and in such bad faith that there was really no option but to go back to the pre-JCPOA world. And in that kind of scenario, it was important that there was no one state and no group of states that would be able to stop us from uh, from doing what we need to do in, in a worst case scenario. Terrific, terrific. That's a terrific summary of this. So let's maybe pivot to the present day and what's been happening in the Security Council. So, so first of all, we're at an interesting time for the Security Council, because for the last few months, it's been operating at times, I guess not, uh, I'm not sure if it's always been operating um, online uh, remotely, but all of this is really very new. And I know there was some discomfort on the part of members of the Security Council with the very idea of voting at a distance, you know, perm reps being in different places and so forth. But um, so there's this added layer of kind of strangeness around uh, operating in a COVID world, but What's really um, of interest for us is the fact that the U.S. has been making, um, as you pointed out in the very beginning of this discussion, a set of claims that have not garnered tremendous uh, agreement from other other states and other uh, Security Council members um, with regard to snapbacks. So, so let's talk about that and the merits of those of those claims. So, so first of all, what is Secretary Pompeo and the Trump administration claiming as a legal matter? Yeah, so there's no formal legal opinion as such, uh, but Secretary Pompeo and others have made pretty clear, I think, the U.S. position. Uh, And it goes something like this. So uh, operative paragraph 10, OP10 of UNSCR 2231, states essentially uh, a list of the the JCPOA participating states at the time that the UNSCR was adopted. And I'm just going to read the sentence in question because I do think it's a little bit revealing. 
It's uh, the paragraph starts with encourages China, France, Germany, the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom, the United States, the European Union, and Iran (parentheses the JCPOA participants) to resolve any issues arising with respect to implementation of JCPOA commitments through the procedures specified in the JCPOA. And it expresses its intention to address possible complaints by JCPOA participants about significant non-performance by another JCPOA participant. So the very uh, paragraph that the U.S. is hanging its hat on here is actually one uh, that expresses its resolve uh, that the mechanisms for dispute resolution and for re resolving concerns specified in the JCPOA uh, will be followed in good faith, right, by by the participants, which of course the Trump administration utterly failed to do. Um, but what they're hanging their hat on is that really descriptive line at the beginning of OP10, which simply names the various countries involved. And then in parentheses says the JCPOA participants. And the argument is essentially that JCPOA participant, therefore, is a defined term in the UNSCR. And it is defined at once and for all times as China, France, Germany, Russia, the UK, the US, and the EU, and Iran. Um, now, that becomes important because in the next paragraph, OP11, is where the snapback mechanism is laid out and allows any JCPOA participant uh, to notify the president of significant non-performance and the rest of the procedure flows on from there. The idea Just that- Just to clarify, mm -hmm. the, when you say notify the president, president of the security- Of council. the council, sorry, yes. Right, Correct. which is a rotating position held for one month uh, and then moves on to another member. That's right. Um, right. Keep, keep going. I just want to make sure people were not confused mm -hmm. by the reference to president. Absolutely. So the the U.S. has essentially attempted to invoke the snapback procedure laid out in OP10, uh, relying on that descriptive language in in OP10 describing the the then JCPOA participants. Um, as a way to argue that the United States, because named in paragraph 10 as a participant in 2015, is still a JCPOA participant and therefore is competent to trigger snapback. And as follows from that, uh, no state can stop the previously suspended uh, UN's, the, the terminated UN Security Council resolutions from coming back into effect 30 days after that notification. Now, of course, we built in an off-ramp that, that we discussed a minute ago, Cal, where a resolution uh, is, is to be circulated within those 30 days that would keep the existing architecture in effect, that would keep UNSCR 2231 in effect, and uh, as, as a corollary, would, would keep the JCPOA on life support, despite the U.S. having walked away. Um, the idea is that once that is circulated, the U.S., uh, under the Trump administration would veto that resolution and the the previous unscurs would would snap back into place. Um, I can pause there at the end that's that's essentially the US argument uh, or I can go into how how the most of the rest of the world sees it Cal if, if that's our next subject. Yeah let, let's do that but just before we do, I'm just curious in drafting this, was it ever anticipated. I mean, it is interesting that there's a named list of participants. Obviously, that sort of presumes a certain continuity over time. And, you know, I think going back in time, given the political heat around Iran and around the Iran deal, 
I would not say it was unforeseeable that a future administration might exit. Um, that maybe would be unlikely, or we certainly, very few of us anticipated President Trump, but it wasn't completely unforeseeable that we might have a change of administration and mm-hmm. a change of view um, about the Iran deal in Toto. So I'm just curious whether anyone anticipated that with reference to this language about, because it does seem like absent that parenthetical that you read us, uh, the U.S. really wouldn't have any claim, if I, if I understand it correctly. So that parenthetical ends up being really important. Right. And, and to be clear, I, I don't think that that is the right argument and, uh, or, or the, the correct uh, interpretation. We'll get to that in a minute. But the, um, the, the idea that a future administration might walk away was absolutely present in our minds and something that we knew, uh, you know, snapback held, held the danger of a future administration deciding to trigger it for reasons that, that we at the time might not have thought were appropriate reasons to do so. Um, But what we didn't envision, at least what I certainly didn't envision, was a future administration walking away from the deal and then years later attempting to trigger snapback after they had no longer been participating. So I personally uh, was surprised when in 2018, uh, the Trump administration declared their non-participation, started ramping back up unilateral sanctions on Iran, and then some, but didn't trigger snapback at the UN on their way out the door. And while the U.S. was still participating, you know, in theory, one couldn't imagine a scenario where a week before they decided to walk away, uh, you know, they built the case at the council, they submitted that notification to the president of the council, and and said there's simply no way at this point that we're going to get to a position where we're confident of, of Iranian performance of the nuclear com- commitments. Therefore, we're triggering multilateral snapback and we're walking out the door uh, and, and reinstituting our unilateral sanctions as well. But that's not what they did. Um, it wasn't exactly clear then, uh, and it isn't clear now why they didn't choose to do that. There's there's an argument that, in fact, uh, they, they weren't... Uh, attempting to blow up the entire JCPOA. They were simply uh, wanting to take a different posture themselves. Um, that did end up being the case. The JCPOA is still on some some version of life support. Um, but the scenario in which the participation ended without triggering snapback is not one that was envisioned, uh, and I think is what sets this apart uh, from the the types of scenarios that we were envisioning when this was drafted in 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that is an unusual thing, and I don't have any real insight as to why they took such a strange path. Now, you started to talk about the reaction of others, and you mentioned early on in our discussion that that really basically no other states uh, have agreed with this, and has been a lot of a, a lot of criticism of the American position as laid out by uh, by Pompeo and others. You also just mentioned now that you didn't agree with it. And so I'm just curious um, whether you think, uh, well, one, maybe you could briefly state why you don't agree, So, though I think it's relatively clear, um, but also whether there are differences in the criticisms that have been leveled against this. In other words, is everyone sort of of a, of a similar mind as to why this argument fails? You know, Cal, it's interesting. Um, I think there is... Uh, a good degree of consensus around why this fails because it is so simple in the end. It really boils down to if you're not participating, you can't be a participant. And that's 
so simple that it's it seems silly to say that's that's really the argument but but that's what it is so the the trump administration in 2018 uh, not only walked away from the deal, you know, not only started reimposing their sanctions, uh, but they really, they they really made clear as a formal matter that they were no longer participating. So, uh, President Trump's May 8, 2018 memorandum, you know, formalizing the the position of walking away from the JCPOA was titled "Ceasing U.S. Participation in the JCPOA uh, and Taking Additional Action, Etc., cetera, Etc." Cetera. Um, it was it was stated, uh, you know, up and down, left and right, that the U.S. would no longer participate, uh, and uh, as a functional matter, the U.S. also stopped participating. Right, the U.S. wasn't showing up at the Joint Commission. The U.S. wasn't involved uh, in any of the implementation measures that had been ongoing to that point, and and in which right the the U.S. had been taking a, a leading role at least until the Trump administration came in. Um, so both as a formal and as a functional matter, the U.S. really did stop participating in the JCPOA in 2018. Um, I think it's pretty straightforward to say if you're not participating, you can't be a participant. Uh, and you certainly can't claim, uh, as is required under paragraphs 36 and 37 of the JCPOA and in UNSCRO 2231 itself, that you have tried in good faith to work through the JCPOA's uh, dispute resolution mechanisms and and the processes laid out to resolve implementation issues that might arise among the participants. Uh, you certainly can't claim that you have done that uh, as a non-participant in the deal. Um, so when the Trump administration came back two years later and said, we're having our cake and are eating it too, we're not participating, but for these purposes and based on that descriptive term as of 2015 in OP10, we are a participant, it was quite easy to say, you know, actually that's doesn't pass the laugh test. Uh, and anything that would flow from a notification to the, to the Security Council president by virtue of a participant having attempted to, to trigger that snapback mechanism is devoid of any legal effect. And that's essentially what the rest of the council, uh, the rest of the Security Council has said, 13 of the 15 members simply don't buy that you cannot be a participant, but also be a participant for the purposes of OP11. And that's where we are right now. That's, uh, I think that's an excellent summary. And I guess just to kind of wrap up our conversation, I'm curious if you would be willing to venture a guess as to what happens now. So we're running up to the end of the month. Uh, there's going to be a turnover. I believe it's Indonesia who's currently mm-hmm. uh, presidency. Yes. Uh, there'll be a turnover on Tuesday uh, of next week, probably after this podcast actually is up. I'm not sure when we'll post, but um, I'm curious what you what you anticipate happening in the next month or two. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I you know ideally this the status quo remains, which is the Security Council takes the position that because the the U.S. notification was devoid of legal effect. The process that is laid out after that in UNSCR 2231 also should not occur. And that means that there should not be the circulation of a resolution that would keep UNSCR 2231 in effect despite the notification by the U.S. Um, And there's no need then to vote on such a resolution. And snapback does not occur 30 days from the notification by the United States. I think the wild card scenario uh, 
uh, would be if a new presidency uh, decided that no, despite the fact that the council has agreed and has, uh, you know, so many of its members have stated uh, publicly their position that the U.S. lacks the legal competence at this point to trigger snapback, despite all of that, uh, we will circulate a resolution um, that would allow the, the UNSCR to remain intact and the JCPOA to remain on life support um, and require that to be voted on, that would be the real wild card scenario. Um, that would essentially be acknowledging that the U.S. does have the competence to trigger snapback. Um, and I think that would then in turn cause real gridlock in the council where you'd have most states, uh, aside from the U.S. Uh, and possibly Dominican Republic, arguing that um, indeed snapback will be effective. Um, uh, sorry, most, most states arguing that snapback will not be effective, um, while the, the U.S. and maybe one other would argue that it is. And we would simply be uh, at an impasse <laughs> until such time as the council were able to get to, uh, to unanimity, which... which could be well into a new uh, a new presidential term in the United States should should the administration change, uh, and that could be uh, a, a real final blow to the JCPOA, which I think many believe is is of course what the Trump administration is trying to accomplish here. Not having been able to kill it unilaterally, uh, they're they're trying right now to go to the council uh, to to kill it so that it can't be revived if there should be a new administration that comes in and wants to reinvigorate diplomacy and, and bring the U.S. back onto the world stage. Um, my hope is that uh, the, the current status quo remains. And it's unfortunately a very stark example of how weak your hand is when you withdraw, right? When you stop participating in international arrangements, you can no longer use the powerful lever levers that are contained within them to shape the behavior of other states. Um, that's what the U.S. has done on, on so many fronts, right? Recently to, to great fanfare with the WHO, announced exit, uh, and also, of, of course, with the JCPOA. Not being present at the table has consequences. Uh, and the, the unfortunate uh, truth is that not only has the U.S. lost moral authority on this issue by being the first uh, to break its own commitments and by walking away when the other side was still complying, they've also lost, uh, lost power. Uh, and I hope that the international community, and in particular the Security Council, holds us to that, um, because it's it's important to demonstrate that um, these institutions still work. The rule of law still prevails within these institutions. Diplomacy is still happening, just unfortunately with the U.S. Um, you know on the outside, with the Trump administration throwing stones rather than talking it out. Um, but at the end of the day, if if the the process that is that is laid out uh, is is able to be uh, averted because the US simply does not have the legal competence to to carry it out I think that's the right outcome uh, and I hope it's it's the one that prevails at the council well Tess, that's an excellent set of points to wrap on and I I of course completely agree on the larger implications of this and I think there is a sort of belief there appears to be a belief in the Trump administration that we wield a level of go-it-alone power that we really don't, or that we can somehow um, bully particular institutions and, and other players within them uh, into certain actions, uh, regardless of whether we're, we're present or not. And I think that's, as this example is showing, not a realistic 
uh, way to go forward. So I couldn't agree more. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and give us your, your insights uh, and wisdom on this. And uh, I hope we have you back again. Thanks, Cal. It was great to be here. Always a pleasure. Sure. Take care. And, and for all of you listening, um, please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and elsewhere, and we will be back uh, soon with another episode in a matter of weeks. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>